I will never forget when I turned 13. Because leading up to that time, I had been given a lot of information about what to expect during the teenage years. And my parents and some of my school teachers, some older cousins, my family doctor, they all had advice for me. And they told me what to expect about how I would develop physically and emotionally and relationally. They told me about raging hormones. They told me about dating, about how my voice would change, about the embarrassment of acne. (laughs) I'll never forget the pimple years. I actually received a lot of very good advice. And yet, hearing about it in advance could not fully prepare me for what was to come. Now, that's largely because I only was 13, but also because we cannot fully grasp the significance of some things until we actually experience them. And at age 20, when I looked back, I saw the advice I'd been given in a very different light. Not just because I was older, but because by then I had the perspective of experience. The reality is this, that we understand things differently when we look back compared to when we look forward. Sometimes a look back is a great way to learn. That's the situation the disciples face in the immediate aftermath of the death and resurrection of Jesus. During his life, he tried to prepare them for those events, but but they couldn't understand it. Not when those events were in the future. However, now that Jesus has returned to life, it's time for them to look back at what he previously taught. A look back will give them a fresh perspective. As we saw last week, here's what's taking place with the disciples on Resurrection Sunday. It's late in the day, and they are trying to come to grips with all that's happened during a very tumultuous weekend. They had a final meal with Jesus on Thursday night. Then he was arrested and put on trial and convicted and executed on Friday. There was the despair and hopelessness of Saturday. And now it's Sunday. And there are reports that the tomb was empty. There are reports that some people actually have seen Jesus alive. So on Sunday evening, the disciples come together to have a conversation and try to make sense out of it all, and suddenly Jesus himself shows up. He talks with them. He eats with them, and he proves that he has returned to life. Most importantly, he tells them that he is not finished. His mission is not over. The disciples still have a vital task to perform. They are to be his witnesses in the world and to help build the kingdom of God. And to equip them for that task, God is going to send the Holy Spirit. This is not new information. Jesus even says, I told you about this before. 
And he did. He told them in some detail about the Holy Spirit on the last night of his life. And so his words to the disciples are an invitation to look back. He wants them to clear away the emotion associated with the incredible events of this weekend they've just gone through so they can recall what Jesus said. What exactly did he teach them? What promises did he make about the Holy Spirit who is to come? Let's take a look back and see what Jesus said. It's recorded for us in the book of John chapter 14 beginning in verse 15. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples and he says, If you love me, keep my commands. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. This is part of a lengthy conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. He's trying to prepare them for his death, his resurrection, and for what will come after that. And one of the things to come is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is going to come and be with the disciples if they make the choice to continue following Jesus. In other words... They can't let the events of the upcoming weekend cause them to abandon Jesus because Jesus will not abandon them. He will ask the Father, and the Father will send the Spirit, and the Spirit will be with them forever. He will never leave. Now, this Spirit has many different characteristics, but Jesus introduces him to the disciples in two distinct ways. First, he describes him as an advocate. Now, your Bible translation might use the word comforter, or counselor, or helper, or mediator. All of those are correct, because the word in the original Greek text has many shades of meaning. It all, it's all about giving us help in a variety of ways so that we can follow Jesus. And when this promise from Jesus comes true and the Spirit is poured out into the world, then the Spirit will be with us and He is on our side. And He will do whatever it takes to help you and to help me live by faith. And we can trust this advocate, Jesus says, because He is the Spirit of truth. And oh, do we need God's truth. There are so many false spirits in this world promoting all kinds of ideas that are contrary to the values of the kingdom of God. And so when we face critical decisions, when we feel pulled in different directions based on competing values, that's a time to pray. To pray and say, Father, please lead me by your spirit of truth. And if we pray, and if we listen, the Holy Spirit will advise your conscience and my conscience, and He will show us how to live according to God's truth. One of the things that we need to notice as Jesus introduces the Spirit to the disciples is He uses the pronoun He, not it. 
The Holy Spirit is not a, a thing. He is a personality. He is one of the three distinct yet unified personalities of our God. And Jesus wants us to know that He and the Spirit are incredibly alike. And, and I think this is where it gets really interesting because in verse 16, Jesus says the Spirit will be another advocate. And there's two different ways to understand that word, another. One means another that is different, and one means another of the same kind. And here's an example to help us see this distinction. So here on the screen we have three numbers, one, two, three. They're written using what we call Arabic numerals. So they look similar, but actually they're completely different because each numeral represents a different number. And this becomes clear the minute we try to do a mathematical calculation. 1 plus 2 gives us a very different result than 2 plus 3. So they look similar, but they're different. So if I have a number 1, and I say, would you give me another number, and you give me a number 2, you're giving me a completely different thing. It's another number of a different type. This is not what Jesus is saying about the relationship between him and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a different kind of advocate for us. I think we can illustrate what Jesus is saying this way. Here we have three tens written using different ways to express that number. Now, they look different because the numerals are different, but guess what? Each one represents exactly the same number. They have the same character. They have the same essence. And if we take those three tens and add them or multiply them or divide them or subtract them or whatever we do, we'll always come up with the same answer because the essence and the character is the same. I believe this is what Jesus is saying about the nature of the Holy Spirit in relationship to Him. He's saying the Spirit will not look like me, but in every other way He will be like me. He will share my character, my nature, my essence. So Jesus and the Spirit are alike in the same way that Jesus and the Father are alike. So when we think of these three distinct personalities of our God, we should not think of them as a series of different numbers like one, two, three. Rather, we should think of them as a collection of the same number, just written differently, looking a little differently, like these three tenths, and yet exactly the same in essence. Based on that understanding, I think what Jesus is saying here to, the, to his followers is profound. He's saying, I will leave you with the Holy Spirit who shares my character and my nature and my essence and my ongoing ministry of comfort and encouragement and guidance. And you will have me with you when I leave because the Spirit who is just like me will be with you. He'll be with you forever. Holy Spirit is coming to be a continuing presence in their lives. What a gift. A gift that Jesus now explains in a bit more detail as we continue on. 
Now, Jesus just said that the world will not be able to accept or see or know the Spirit, and then he says, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Wow, get your head around that. Part of God Almighty living in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me, and because I live, you also will live. On that day, the day when this promise is fulfilled, that day when the Holy Spirit is poured out, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Now, now I think Jesus' words here are a bit mysterious. I don't pretend to understand everything he says, but here's what I think he means. In the future, when the Spirit comes to live within the disciples, they will recognize that they now are connected to God in a whole new way. Jesus will be gone, but the disciples still will see him and know him and experience him because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The presence of the Holy Spirit will give them the hope of eternity, the hope of a life after this one. The presence of the Holy Spirit will help them continue to experience Jesus' love in a personal way. And the Spirit will help them to do what Jesus asks. So Jesus will leave, but He will still be present because of the Holy Spirit who is just like him. Wow. Now, now it's not easy to get our heads around this. It's a bit overwhelming. And it was overwhelming for the disciples. It doesn't make sense to them, not yet, not while they're having to look forward later on. As they look back, it will become more clear. But right now, they're very confused. So one of them asked Jesus a question. Now, it's not the question I would have asked, but it's a question that must be addressed. Verse 22, then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, that's a very important qualification. Then Judas said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things. He'll teach you. He'll teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Jesus had just said that the world would not see him anymore, but the disciples would. And Judas concludes then somehow it's all supposed to be some kind of big secret. He thinks that for some reason Jesus doesn't want everyone in the world to know about him. And I love the way that Jesus answers because he answers indirectly. He basically says, people who love me do what I ask. So it's a nudge to think. It's a hint 
to ask ourselves, so, so what does Jesus ask of his disciples? Well, what he asks about his disciples is to tell people about the kingdom of God. Jesus has made that abundantly clear throughout his life. It's not a secret. In fact, it's the very reason that he came. It's a message that the world needs to hear. And Jesus, after he equips these disciples, they will be commissioned to be his witnesses locally, regionally, and globally. In fact, one of the first things he says to his disciples when he meets with them on Resurrection Day and proves that he's come back to life, he says, you will be my witnesses. And he's going to say that again right before he returns to heaven. So Jesus' response to the question really boils down to this. You'll get the right answer if you follow my teaching. And since I won't be here personally, Jesus says, I'm going to send you a teacher. That's a promise. And the Holy Spirit will teach you. And he'll teach you by reminding you of everything I said. Now, think about all that Jesus and the disciples experienced during their three years together. There's no way humanly possible that they could remember everything he said and everything that he did. And so the Holy Spirit is going to teach them what they need to remember so that they can live lives as faithful witnesses of Jesus Christ. And he's going to help them remember not just for their sakes, but also for ours. The Holy Spirit will help them recall the pivotal moments that need to be written down for subsequent generations. And that's why we have the New Testament. We have the New Testament precisely because of the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. He reminded these people of what they needed to record for us. And we need to understand that the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit continues today. Because he is alive and he is well and he is within us. And the Bible that we have been given is a spiritual book and we need help to understand it. I believe that every time we sit down to read the Bible we should pray and say, Heavenly Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal your truth to me. Help me to grasp what I need to know today so that I can live as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit can and will help us to understand the truth of God. And when we listen to the Spirit's teaching and start to try to live by faith, then as we're living, He's going to come into our lives and help us as our counselor and our mediator and our advocate and our comforter. And as we grab hold of God's truth and strive to live it out in our lives, yielding to the influence of the Holy Spirit, then God brings about an incredible gift for His children. It's the gift of His peace. Because the Holy Spirit comes as a peacemaker for the children of God. That's what Jesus talks about next. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. Jesus says he's going away. He says he will leave behind the Holy Spirit. 
And so when he says, I'm leaving you peace, I think he's saying that this peace comes through the presence and the help and the teaching of the Holy Spirit. We can experience God's peace as we yield more and more to the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And it's so vitally important to understand that the peace of God given through the Holy Spirit is vastly different than the peace offered by our world. Because our very human problem is to look for peace in all the wrong places. How do you define peace? What do you think of when you think of peace? Some people view peace simply as the absence of war. But the absence of war isn't peace, it's just a truce. And a truce can last a long time, but it always will come to an end because human beings seem to always find reasons to go to war. The peace of mankind never lasts. And that's the tragic lesson of history. Sometimes we view resources as the key to peace, and we think, oh, if I just have enough money or power or influence, if I, if I live in the right place, if I have the right kind of job, oh, then I'll be at peace. It's just not true. A peace based on resources never will last. That's the lesson of every economic recession. Sometimes we view politics as the key to peace. And we think, oh, if we just get the right people elected and we get the right policies in place, oh, then we'll be at peace. Now, it's true that some politicians are better than others. And some government policies make this world better and some don't. But in many cases, even defining that is rather subjective. But the fact is, governments and politicians do not bring lasting peace. That's the lesson of every election. God's peace is not based on any of these things. It's based on a relationship, a relationship with God the Father, purchased through the death of God the Son and made real through the living presence in you and me of God the Holy Spirit. And because God the Spirit is with us and in us, then we actually can experience God's peace in moments of great stress and difficulty and hardship. We have a great example of this from the life of the Apostle Paul. He's on one of his missionary trips and he's visiting towns preaching about Jesus along with his companion Silas. And on one occasion, people get in an uproar because they don't want to hear about Jesus and Paul and Silas are arrested simply for telling God's truth. And they are beaten and they're put in jail and placed in stocks. So they're bleeding. They're in great pain. They're uncomfortable. And they can't sleep, so at midnight they're wide awake. And what are they doing? Are they complaining about their circumstances? No, they are singing praises to God. How can they do that? They can do it because they are at peace. 
They can do it because the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit helps them experience something supernatural that we cannot fully explain, but it helps them transcend their painful circumstances. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul calls this the peace that passes all understanding? We can't explain it, but it's real. It was real for Paul, and it can be real for us too. And Jesus is promising that when we allow the Holy Spirit to influence us, then we do not need to feel troubled. We do not need to feel anxious or afraid because the Spirit comes into your life and my life as a peacemaker. He wants to bring peace to our minds and our hearts and our souls. He wants to bring peace to our relationships. He wants you and He wants me to experience His peace, regardless of our circumstances. The peace of God that comes only through the Spirit of God. It's an amazing gift, and it is available to every follower of Jesus as we listen to and yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Now, we've actually only looked at a part of what Jesus has said. It's It's really a rather lengthy conversation. And it's a lot of information to dump on his disciples. Why is he doing this? He's doing this to prepare them for what lies ahead. And that's what he says next. You heard me say I am going away and I am coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. We need to remember that the disciples are hearing this on a Thursday night. And over the next 24 hours, what they see will be ugly. They will see Satan, the prince of this world, at work in the minds and the hearts and the lives of those who execute Jesus on Friday. And yet Jesus, as he stands here on the brink of that, wants his followers to know that Satan is not winning the battle. Satan is not winning Because Jesus voluntarily is going to the cross to fulfill the plan of the Heavenly Father. And so he wants the disciples to continue to trust in God despite the horror and the injustice of the crucifixion and the ugliness of everything else that will take place over that weekend. And even though Jesus will experience tremendous physical agony, I think he's telling them, that he is content to go through with this. I think he's saying, I will have peace in my soul because I'm a loving son who's obedient to my loving father. Jesus wants his followers to know that if he is content to go forward, if he can trust the father, then the disciples can too. And it doesn't all make sense yet. But in just a few days, when Jesus returns to life, 
that's when everything they've been told will begin to make sense. And so now we return to Easter Sunday, late in the evening. Jesus is there talking to the disciples, saying, I told you all this before. This is the conversation he wants them to remember. He wants them to recall these promises that he made prior to his death and burial and resurrection. Because what he said about his death and his resurrection now has come true, which means they can trust that what he's promised about the Holy Spirit also will come true. He's telling them there is unfinished business ahead. It will be new. It will be different. It will be exciting because the Spirit is coming to be your advocate, to be the continual presence of Jesus, to be their teacher and to bring them peace in any circumstances that they might face. Now they have to wait a few weeks for all of this to come true. But it will come true. It comes true on the day of Pentecost, recorded for us in the book of Acts, chapter 2. In a few weeks, we're going to look at that account in some detail, so we will understand exactly what Jesus did when he poured out his Spirit and his promises for the church came true. Now, the disciples have to wait, but thankfully, we do not. We're fortunate to stand on this side of history. And so the Holy Spirit is here in the world and He is available to anyone who chooses to follow Jesus by faith. And what Jesus has described here, this presence of the Holy Spirit, this becomes a reality when we repent of our sins and when we are baptized as an act of faith. That's when God places His Spirit within men and women. It's the moment when every believer can say, these promises now can come true in my life. And it might be that you've never experienced this. And if so, I want to encourage you to head over to the prayer corner after the service and talk with one of our elders. We'd love to get you connected to Jesus. Why wait? Why wouldn't you want to take advantage of this incredible gift that Jesus is describing for everyone who chooses to simply love Him and trust Him and follow Him by faith? Now, for those of us who are already followers of Jesus, I think think there's a challenge here. I think it's a reminder not to take the Holy Spirit for granted. We never can forget that the Holy Spirit lives within us. And He wants to be available to us to help us as our advocate and as our teacher. He wants to bring you and me the peace of God. And the question is, are we experiencing these things? Are we experiencing the reality of the leading of the Spirit? on a daily basis. And if not, then I believe it's an invitation to pray more and to ask God to guide us through the influence of His Spirit. There's a lot here in this passage, but here's where I think God wants to leave us today with Jesus' words about peace. Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. 
my hope and my prayer is that promise will become true and be vividly true every day in your life and in mine as we make the choice to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit of God.